Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? It's Friday. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, coming up on today's special episode, we'll be looking at the subject of race in Britain as Black Lives Matter protesters plan another weekend of demonstrations in London. Of course, following the death of George Floyd in Minnesota, the demonstrations that were then held in the US and then, of course, all around the world. But first, let's focus on the economy. UK GDP plunged by a record 20.4% in April as the lockdown brought activity to a standstill. Now, that effectively wipes out almost 18 years of growth, returning the economy to the size it was in 2002. Pretty dire figures. Meanwhile, the government is backing down on plans to impose full customs checks after Brexit. The U-turn is an attempt to avoid piling on additional burden on businesses already struggling with the impact of the coronavirus. So let's get into these stories with our senior executive editor, David Merritt. David, good to have you. Uh, Let's start on this Brexit story then. Talk us through the details. Full customs checks after Brexit, not what we were talking about a few weeks ago. That's right. You know, and I wonder if this is a bit of a sign of the way these talks are going to go in the sense that people are backing away from the, as it were, nuclear option of putting up these borders, um, you know, have companies going to have to go through all this paperwork and it's going to be, you know, the vision of queues of lorries backed up at, at Dover. They're going to do whatever they can to try to avoid that. We know that we don't have a proper deal in place yet. There's still big differences on all the issues around governance, around fisheries, uh, levying, you know, the level playing field. But maybe there's a sign here that if they're willing to actually compromise on this and to say that we're going to come up with a, a side accord, as it were, to, to avoid all that disruption, perhaps when it comes to the end of the year, we could see other small deals on these other issues, which means we're going to avoid um, you know, this big crash out at the end of the year. Because, of course, as you just said, the economy contracting by these absolutely eye-popping numbers. And, of course, the same is happening on the other side of the channel. Governments, both sides of the channel, do not want to be blamed for adding that huge economic crisis that we're currently in. Yes, I love that quote from the CBI yesterday saying that uh, it's like having your house on fire and then someone comes and set fire to your shed as well. Because I mean, businesses are suffering clearly in this circumstance, David. But if there is no trade deal agreed, just having slightly lighter customs measures isn't really going to cut it as far as uh, keeping them going. No, that's right. I mean, of course, we would technically fall back on world trade organization rules. That means quotas. It means tariffs on an awful lot of goods uh, where currently there are none of those things. And so it's going to become very complicated. Lorries that currently drive straight through uh, at Dover and at Calais are going to have to have the content checked. They're going to have to have paperwork checked. 
And, you know, there's been analysis that even a few seconds added on to the time it takes uh, is going to result in multiple mile-length tailbacks. Um, and, of course, you know, right now there's been a uh, big uh, question raised about food security, and we've seen that with empty shelves uh, in Britain on the coronavirus um, panic that set in um, over lockdown. And we've become acutely aware of quite how dependent we are on the free flow of food, particularly through um, through the, the Dover port. And if you add delays onto lorries, you know, we're going to start seeing uh, acute shortages of food again. And that is not something the government, of course, wants to uh, be held responsible for. So a lot of effort will be, be, is going in to try to smooth out that process. Um, and yes, avoid any unnecessary burdens on businesses, which, you know, many of whom are currently sort of struggling to survive. The sort of adding on to that paperwork and having to pay extra tariffs is sort of unthinkable. So these talks then, these Brexit talks, are generally top-down level stalled. Both sides expressing some sort of will to get things going again. We've got Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen speaking on Monday to try and unlock all of this, inject a bit of momentum into the talks. Is that going to be able to succeed? We know famously it's it's doable. You saw Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar doing something similar to get the original Brexit deal. But of course, that was in person. There's a very different dynamic when you're actually seeing someone face to face. That's right. Um, it's going to be fascinating what comes out of that, um, of those talks, of that virtual um, meeting. Um, perhaps negotiating with, with um, Ursula von der Leyen might be a little bit different from her predecessor. But, you know, the European Union isn't famous, is it, for getting deals done um, this far away from a deadline? You know, we're still six months away uh, from the actual cliff edge moment. And it feels a bit unlikely that, they, that Boris Johnson and Ursula van der Leyen are going to be able to bridge these gaps. There, there was virtually no progress made at all, uh, we've learned, in the round of negotiation that just tied up on these big questions of access to uh, fishing waters, um, the, the overall governance of the deal, to so the role of the European Court of Justice, and crucially, this thing that they call the level playing field. You know, is Britain going to try and undercut the European Union on things like food standards or employment rights? and therefore, you know, be an unfair competitor. That's what the European Union are particularly animated about, and something that Boris Johnson has said is a big red line. So the, the red line seems to have hardened, if anything. So how can they bridge those two things? Is there any wiggle room uh, to get a deal across the line? Um, it feels a bit unlikely at this point. But, you know, we, you know, let's be fair to Boris Johnson. We said that, didn't we, back in, uh, remember, back in the midst of time last year, and he did come back with that compromise Brexit deal. So perhaps he's got some secret negotiating powers that we're not aware of, and he's going to come back with something. But I suspect this is going to go a lot further into the year and into the autumn, maybe all the way up to the wire towards the end of the year before we actually see either side giving ground enough to clinch a deal. But meanwhile, of course, he's got to try and keep the UK uh, limited online, uh, working vaguely. A vast amount of government lending, a vast amount of government support, and now this suggestion that, that, that the amount of money we actually are making is so small, comparatively, uh, takes us back to 2002, the GDP figures. David, I mean, this is something where it's a circle that can't be squared, surely. I know. I mean, it really is astonishing, the numbers. I actually took a sort of photograph of my Bloomberg screen this morning with the list of the GDP numbers for, for posterity, because it is quite astonishing. These double-digit falls, 20% drop uh, in GDP. None of us have seen 
anything like it. And the amount of money that the Treasury is having to pay to prop up businesses, and the real worry now is that once they actually start withdrawing that support and the lockdown is eased, these companies are going to be firing people anyway. So all of that money to keep people furloughed, keep people in their jobs, may have been in some respects for nothing. And employment, unemployment uh, is going to rock it. That's going to have this kind of doom loop back into the economy um, whereby we can't pull ourselves out of it. And meanwhile, the budget deficit is, you know, is, is, is ballooning. So it, a very, very difficult job they've got at the Treasury. And anything that, you know, that the government is doing to try to prop up the economy, they do not want that undermined by there being another problem with Brexit. And we know that you know, public opinion polls are saying, the public are saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, just extend it. Like, we, should act, we, we don't want another cliff edge coming uh, at the end of the year. But that's very politically difficult for Boris Johnson. He was elected on that landslide victory last December saying we're going to get Brexit done. And they are really, really clear about this. They're saying they're not going to budge an inch. They're not going to extend. They're going to get um, us out of the single market at the end of the year, um, come hell or high water. So, you know, it's a very difficult juggling act. How do you be perceived not recklessly trashing the economy even further, but also sticking to your promises that you made everyone and that brought you to power in the first place? A very, very difficult balancing act. Yeah. Okay. so that's Brexit and the economy. Let's move things on to the subjects of our special today, which is racial inequality. We've got more Black Lives Matters protests set for this weekend. Is the government being strong enough on this? We had some very understanding, in a sense, words from Boris Johnson, but then Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, giving a dressing down to Bristol police for not being uh, for not coming in and acting when that statue was pulled down last weekend. Yes. And again, you know, for a conservative government, this is a very difficult ground for them. Um, also, we had Priti Patel making very impassioned words at the dispatch box this week about her own personal experience of racism uh, growing up um, and how she therefore felt very qualified to, to talk on this issue in spite of some of the claims from the Labour opposition. But of course, the Tories like to style themselves, don't they? It's the party of law and order. And the sight of a, you know, of a, of a group of demonstrators ripping down a statue um, in Bristol um, has left people torn because actually a lot of the public were quite supportive of removing this statue. They did not like what this person stood for, the history of the involvement with the slave trade. We saw similar scenes in Oxford this week around this, which is not a new question, around the statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College. Thousands of people turning out. So the government at the same time don't want to be seen as blocking um, you know, people's right to express their, um, their views on this and to, and to uh, be not stuck in the past with some of these figures who were of very questionable uh, backgrounds now. Um, but of course, they want to maintain law and order. So they're a little bit stuck. I mean, you know, a lot of their traditional supporters don't want to see this stuff happening. But of course, a lot of their new supporters maybe do. And, uh, you know, in London, it's interesting that the Labour mayor, Sadiq Khan, has announced this review of all of the statues, of which there are many, of course, and also things like street names and, you know, looking into the past of um, all of these people whose names are plastered on buildings and statues, and maybe it's time to have a rethink and think about who are we celebrating, who are we holding up as, as icons on statues and things around the city. I think it's very difficult for the government and for Boris Johnson to be on the other side of that argument yeah. at the moment. Um, so they have to actually change, and I think we're going to see them shift position, but it's going to be very interesting how they handle that in the coming weeks. Yeah, because uh, and, and a big thing with all this, of course, is not so much the statues, but what it reflects about the state of the BME 
community in Britain in 2020 and the extent to which they are uh, perhaps less advantaged, the extent to which, of course, they've suffered worse during the coronavirus. David, thanks so much for being with us. That was our senior executive editor, David Merritt. And coming up in the next part of the programme, we're going to be talking to the head of the Black Lives, the Black Vote project, Project Black Vote, which the idea is to get people of colour to vote and to be represented in our democracy and seeing that as a way, Seb, in which true equality really can come. Let's have a look at what else is baking news. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE in the world of politics. Roger, where do we start? Well, we start with airlines because Britain's biggest airlines are suing the government in a bid to overturn new quarantine rules. People arriving in Britain are required to self-isolate for two weeks. But British Airways, Ryanair and EasyJet all say the plan will have a devastating effect on British tourism and the wider economy and destroy thousands of jobs. They're trying to get a judicial review to be heard as soon as possible, possibly, I suppose, then with an injunction to stop it happening. Mm, yeah, I'd be intrigued to see where the court of public opinion comes down on this one. Do people want to go on their holidays or do people want to not take the risk and, and stay safe at home? Uh, the other thing we're looking at is the plan to get kids to catch up on what they've missed at school. The government considering summer camps and national tutoring service and extra funds for schools as part of the plan. Uh, this is according to the I newspaper. This week, Boris Johnson promised a massive catch up operation over the summer and beyond for pupils who have missed out on schooling. Details set to be outlined officially by the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, next week. That and beyond, I think, is critical because uh, various people who uh, work in education have said that it's not just about the immediate catch-up. It's about the ongoing effects of having lost this education. You need more time in order to ensure that these children don't lose out. Yeah, lost generation is the phrase we're hearing. Uh, meanwhile, there's a bit of a scandal brewing, really, about Robert Jenrick, who's the housing secretary. The Times has had a few more details about it. It's a planning row. Basically, Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, met the billionaire property developer Richard Desmond three times, including for drinks at a five-star Westminster hotel, before approving a housing development in East London. Now, Robert Jenrick has been accused of giving the project the green light against the recommendation of a planning inspector after having dinner with Desmond, who then made a donation to the Tories. So people saying, not entirely convinced this is entirely right. Yeah, Boris Johnson standing by Jenrick on this one. But of course, as you said, he was involved as well. So it'll be interesting to see how this one gets picked up in the press uh, and, and whether it sort of cuts through like some other stories have. And then finally, we're looking at Labour. Keir Starmer scoring the highest ratings of any leader of the opposition since Tony Blair in an Ipsos Mori poll for the Evening Standard. Some 51% are satisfied with Sir Keir's performance. 
20% dissatisfied. The survey also shows a narrowing gap between the parties. The Conservatives on 43%, down 9 points since March, and Labour on 38%, up 8. What I think is interesting is that 30-odd percent who are neither satisfied nor dissatisfied, and that is the big job for Keir Starmer at the moment, is introducing himself to the public and uh, trying to get people to form an opinion, whichever way it goes. And even to recognise him. It's always recognition yeah. of the issue. <laughs> but anyway, now this uh, Bloomberg Westminster is a special looking at the whole issue of race equality in the UK. What was clear about the protests over the last week in Britain is that what happened in the US had resonance here. More than 20 years after the McPherson report famously found that institutional racism existed in the Metropolitan Police, many black and Asian people in Britain still don't feel equal in the eyes of the law or in society generally. Famously, Martin Luther King said, a riot is the voice of the unheard, but we haven't actually had riots here. There is a feeling that BAME people are not being listened to. So can they be heard through the ballot box? Well, joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Simon Woolley, the founder and director of Operation Black Vote, also advisory chair of the government of the government of the United Kingdom's Race Disparity Unit. Simon, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the programme. Um, can I ask you first, then, how important is it in addressing the kind of issues that have been around over the last week or so to campaign for black people to vote? Oh, it's critically important. I mean, as you know, uh, the elections are won and lost in the margins. 5% here, a few percentage points there. And we can make that difference. In effect, we can decide who wins any general election if we're registered to vote and if we vote. Part of the challenge is that we don't realise just how powerful we are and how significant we can, we can decide on who wins those big elections. And what about the protests we've seen here? What, what is your take on them? Do you think generally they're a force for good? Most definitely. I mean, these are seismic uh, occurrences that we're, we're seeing. And in many ways, we're having, we're having a perfect storm, a, a storm that has been created from the COVID-19 pandemic, which clearly has laid bare some structural, deep structural inequalities that particularly face African, Asian, Caribbean and other minority communities. That's one element of the storm. And the other element is the, the public lynching of George Floyd, which many people say, and with some justification, it wasn't just the knee of the officer that killed this black man in broad daylight, but the American system, a system which, like the, the UK, sees black people as less than, and in the extreme, as not even human. I mean, this man was pleading for his life. He had his hands behind his back, he's on the floor pleading for his life. And the officer treated him worse than a dog. And, of course, that's the extreme that many people recognise. It's not just the extreme that we face this less than um, view and, and interaction. It's also housing. It's also employment. When you look both here and in the States, it's black and brown people on low pay, on zero-hour contracts, many of whom have had to put their life at risk with COVID-19, or not pay the rent and not put food on the table. So th this disease and this death has uncovered and amplified these seismic inequalities and convulsed people to go on the streets and for governments to say, what will our response be? I would argue that historians will look back at this time and ask but one question. Uh, when they see this perfect storm, what was our response? I hope that we're big enough, bold enough, brave enough to see 
this reality and our fundamental change, you know, not putting a band-aid over a gaping wound, but having structural restructure, if you like. Uh, so out of this awfulness, we can have something much better, much but, fairer. But Simon, a lot of people listening to this may well be saying, well, yes, what you're talking there is, I know you included Britain in it, but they see it as a, a, a strongly American problem. It's a, a peculiarly American problem in some ways. And no, that although things no, aren't great it's, here, it, it's a lot better. Well, I mean, it's relatively speaking. I mean, if you have, if you've, if you've had a loved one die of COVID nineteen because they've been uh, overly exposed to COVID nineteen uh, in a care home or in a hospital as porter or a cleaner, then how much better can it be? If you've seen some of the data about people stop and search about people dying in police custody here, how much better can it be? It's a variation of the same thing, uh, and it is global. Uh, and it is deep seated. I mean, look. What, this, what these events have done is forced us to look at our history. Whether we like it or not, the USA and UK has built its power base on the enslavement of Africans and the stealing of the resources. And what they've done with them, with them resources and that enrichment, it's created a system that today still keeps people locked out, still keeps Africa as a continent on the floor, still looks at black and brown people as less than. So you take your, our grandest universities, the grandest universities on the planet, Harvard, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, and they were built to maintain the status quo. And so the riches go there, and then the riches then run our organizations, and the cycle continues. And we think that's fine, and it isn't. What do you make of the culture war aspect of this? What would you say to uh, people who argue that things like the various networks that are taking down old episodes of things like Faulty Towers, um, is that going too far, do you think? Well, I mean, I think if you put them in a, in a documentary and say, this is how we used to be, but we're not like that anymore, then it's legitimate. But these are profoundly racist programs. I mean, they used to have the black and white minstrel show here. As a child, I would sit with my parents watching this, ridiculed, me and my family. And now we've said, actually, we shouldn't have these on our TV. Love thy neighbor. I mean, we used to make a, a virtue out of being racist. Now, if this was the other way around, people would say, you know, let's take it down. You, you wouldn't dream of having a statue of Adolf Hitler anywhere in the world simply because it's part of history. So why do we have the monuments of these people that fought for most of their life to keep black people in a subservient, enslaved manner? Why would you do that? What is the justification? David, uh, Simon, let me ask you, is, is in your experience as a, as a black man living in Britain, has it changed in your lifetime? Do you feel more equal now? Do you feel well, more respected? I mean, it's almost, a, it's almost a ridiculous question to ask. Uh, yes, it's changed. And when I was a child, I would see what they called, uh, excuse the language, skinheads just going around terrorizing, terrorizing people. But when I was a child, you could put up in a window, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. You can't do that anymore. So, of course, there's changes. But I am impatient for real change. You know, I had a Zoom call yesterday with the civil rights leader, Reverend Jesse Jackson. And he said to the audience that we were speaking to, yes, we're free, we're still not equal. 
Now, until we gain equality, until we have the humanity that treats me fully as a human being, in which, by the way, everybody benefits. You know, Bloomberg is often a, you know, a financial institution, and we want to play, we want the best that we have to fulfill their potential. Then we have to, must, unlock these deep-seated barriers. Now, there's a moment, there's a moment in history where we'll say, oh, yeah, but, you know, we're still, we're, we've moved on. Yes, we've moved on. We're not in slavery. We're not in colonialism. But the deep-seated inequalities are literally killing people. I mean, what part of that do your listeners or even yourself don't get? What part of that? All right, Simon, thank you very much for that. Simon Woolley there, uh, founder and director of Operation Blackfoot and advisory chair to the government's race disparity unit. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.